All right. <clears throat> Let's open the word of prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for our gathering. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we look at the history of the church and, and in this era in which we are, that you would teach us. It would be meaningful to us, and it would be honoring to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, uh, a topic that's uh, angering for me. The next couple weeks, it's uh, angering. I've learned to use the word frustrating more than say angering. Some people equate anger with fury and rage. For me, it's just being irked. So uh, just so you know, I'm not throwing anything on it, but this is a very difficult time, uh, time period, but it's an expected time period of church history. So in the rise of liberalism, uh, in the history of the church, liberal versus conservative ideas have always plagued us. Uh, we've seen that throughout our study of the last 20 plus weeks. Uh, is it God's words or man's ideas? Which one are we going to go with? And people still are battling with that. Uh, we like God's word when it tells us what we want, but if we got a better idea, we're typically going to go with that. Specifically, the rise of evolution in our present era has caused Christians to take different sides on the question of what we know and how we know it. Now, the study of what we know and how we know it, you may or may not know, is called the study of epistemology. Epistemology is how do we know anything at all? Um, somewhat associated with metaphysics, but uh, won't get into that too hard. So uh, early on in the lecture, I'm going to throw this one at you. Okay, you can uh, follow it or not, but uh, the back and forth, how do we know what we know? How do we know what we know? Empiricists, they're empiricists and they're rationalists. And each side will debate what you know and how you can know. The empiricism side believes that knowledge is based on our experience and experimentation. Science. Science is experimentation. That's how we know. We know everything by science and by experience. That experiential science is the paradigm of knowledge. Uh, that experience and experiment rarely, if ever, produce certainty. It's always just kind of, this is what's true now. Uh, we can't always know everything for certainty, for certain, some empiricists would say. And some empiricists believe that mathematics can be certain. In fact, they believe that not everything can be certain, but mathematics can be. Two plus two is always going to be four. Of course, we live in a society where to say that, I'm told now, is racist. The rationalists on the other side uh, believe that knowledge is based on our use of reason or logic. Uh, mathematics is a paradigm of knowledge in and of itself. And genuine knowledge is certain. So empiricists, or I'm say rationalists, believe in certainty, unlike empiricists. Uh, relation to experience, experience does not produce certainty and does not conform to reason. So just because you had an experience doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't necessarily conform to reason. Thus, experience is at best second-class knowledge, according to a rationalist. You with me? Sure. You, okay, hang in there. Some of the rationalists of the past are Baruch Spinoza, Rene Descartes, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. All of these argue that reason precedes experience in the quest for certainty. Uh, and then there's the empiricists, John Locke, David Hume, George Berkeley, all stressed experience as superior to reason. Um, their ideas and findings put ancient authorities in doubt. That's John Locke at the top, David Hume there at the side, and George Berkeley at the bottom. Uh, Copernicus, for instance, saw the earth revolving around the sun. Well, that makes sense. We know that that's true. Uh, and that put Ptolemy's ideas in doubt. Ptolemy had said that, no, the sun revolves around the earth. And the church latched onto that, saying that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around that. So when science said otherwise, that put the church in doubt. The Bible and its historians were now in doubt since they taught the sun revolved around the earth. So 
The empiricists are looking for... All of this kind of comes together to make people confused. Can we know anything at all? The study of epistemology. How can we know anything at all? Empiricists or rationalists? How many of you remember, I mean, taking, if you took a philosophy class in college, um, you remember some of these people. You, you remember taking a test, and if you had a class like mine, it was a, um, you had to write down, tell me, tell me who David Hume was, tell me who Immanuel Kant was, and what he said, what they, what they did. Do you remember any of it? No. Okay, yeah, it's uh, one of those things you soon forgot afterward. Um, I didn't. It's kind of one of the things you, you realize you're on a track where you remember your philosophers, and you... And I just couldn't stand them. I mean, they made me so mad. I, there's no way these guys can be right. And so uh, that's, that was kind of some of the beginning of, what, of, of, of my own battle and how I became a pastor even today. But uh, I remember asking uh, Dr. Bradley, who was my philosophy professor at, uh, at um, Sam Houston State. And he was a, I learned he was a Christian because the first day I raised my hand and I said, look, um, I don't want to waste my time in this class. Are you going to be one of those guys that tries to make us believe that there is no God? And he said, wow, this is the introductory class. And he called me this guy. And this guy is back here in the, sitting in the back row of my class questioning me. I said, I'm waiting for an answer. <laughs> and he and I got to be friends. And I, I loved, and he learned that he was a Lutheran. He wasn't a, an atheist. And uh, we had some fun together. And uh, he challenged me, and I tried to challenge him. Uh, but these guys really made a, a big impression on me. When I did my dissertation, my Ph.D. dissertation, I, I, I got a little too much of these atheists. Uh, and so I learned quite a bit. So I, if, if you know a little bit something about them, uh, you can maybe feel my pain and struggle with them. In the past, uh, church history, we've seen this. It was revelation, that's God's revealed word, plus tradition, plus reason. Tradition kept heresy in check, tended to anyway. In the Enlightenment, that's the time period of, of these liberals, Man freed himself from his nannies, quote-unquote, and, and the ancient authorities and the Bible. In other words, the old church historians, the old church fathers, here's what they said, they were your nannies, and the Bible, they were your nannies. Stop listening to these people and listen to reason. People still say that. It turned into philosophy plus evolution plus higher criticism, which spit out what's today known as a social gospel. So not much gospel at all. Christians began to see science as superior to the teachings of the Bible. Then and now. And that's really, we're, we're talking about church history. That's where I brought us to at this point. Is that's what, what we had in the past, the Bible, tradition. And now we come up and science has, has debunked all of this. And you still hear that today. Well, I'm not a Christian. I can't be a Christian. I believe in science. They don't contradict. They can't contradict. God created science because God exists. Before 1880, most universities were Christian. Afterward, they turned liberal. Uh, faith comes, we read from Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So how do we believe the truth? We hear the truth preached. That's what we believe. God's word says it. Our lives attest to it. This fell, however, on deaf ears during the Enlightenment. They rejected the faith of Hebrews eleven two, whereby it is impossible to please God without faith. We believe that which we don't know because what we know is that God is good and God made this. We may not be able to see everything. We may not be able to make sense of everything, but we know and we believe what we do not have. We have enough faith to believe what God has said to be true, even if we can't prove it. Remember Anselm, around uh, 1000, Archbishop of Canterbury? He said, I believe in order that I may understand. 
Many people are trying to understand so that they can believe. Anselm said, no, I believe what God has said to enlighten my, so that I can be enlightened to understand. This was a rejection, rejected in favor of I experience in order that I may believe. And people today will say that I need to experience God. In fact, there's a whole curriculum. Some of you went through it in your past, experiencing God. You got to experience God. Do we have to experience God and know that God exists? Some do. And yet God exists whether we experience him or not, right? So the enlightenment said, here's some of the enlightenment thinkers. We've seen this slide in the past. No original sin. Man is not born sinful. Has no need for salvation. Uh, Contradicting the Bible and refuting Augustine who said we were born with original sin. Natural disasters, they say, prove God has no mercy, no involvement in the world. Does not love the world he created. The Bible is merely a collection of man-made documents. Jesus is not God, only a good moral teacher. Jesus' death was only an example of self-sacrifice. Now, guys, that is the world where we live today. That's what most of the world thinks. That's what many, if not most, the majority of churches on this planet believe. Do you know that? If you're young and you've never been anywhere except this church or or Bible-thumping churches, you don't know that. That's what's out there. Most churches... Believe that because most of their preachers went to liberal seminaries and they don't believe in Jesus Christ. David Hume. David Hume didn't even believe. By, his, by Hume's own um, logic, he can't exist. I'll get to you, Charles. Hill. He can't exist. Why? Because he says anything that happens once is disproved. He's trying to disprove miracles. It can't be proven. It's happened once. It's got to happen many times over and over again for it to be proven. Well, David Hume was only born once. By his own logic, he can't be proven. Yeah, Charlie. So if most um, people believe that, or most churches believe that, are they teaching that in seminaries? Sure. Oh, yeah. They're teaching in most seminaries. Oh. That's, why that's why your pastors believe it. So David Hume, in rationalism, sought to prove God by reason. and empiricism, sought to prove by God by experience. Hume didn't believe anything. 1711 to 1776, he said that both are simply pictures of reality, no way to know if these, are, if these pictures are true. Now note this. He would never like to speak in absolutes. He would say there's no way to know these pictures are true. Nothing can be known. And my sarcasm is in the parentheses. To say nothing can be known implies that you know something whereby you can say nothing can be known. All of his philosophy. You can, you can knock this guy out of the park in about three sentences. And yet he ruled the day in the past and continues to in many philosophical uh, departments today. Um, he would say everything is not necessarily. Uh, everything has a ness to it. You know, there's, there's good ness. There's bad ness. Elliot ness. <laughs> That's my old philosophy for professors, a uh, joke. And you still, still with us. Yeah, it's a good ness. Um, and so he would say, okay, if there's smoke, there's, there's smoke. There must be a fire. Not necessarily. There's, there's thunder. There's, there's thunder. There must have been lightning. Not necessarily. Maybe somebody didn't see the lightning. You did. We don't even know the lightning actually existed. In his way of thinking, there's no way to conclude anything, even his own existence. Immanuel Kant comes out. He says he woke up from his uh, academic slumber, came to life. He didn't give us a whole lot. He said we could know the visible and the physical. He called it the phenomenal. We can know the phenomenal. The invisible and metaphysical, however, cannot be known. Again, How does he know? He must know so much of it. It requires more than knowledge, we say, to make that conclusion. 
And these guys were the smartest of the day. Here he's saying that we cannot know the invisible and metaphysical. You've got to know that there is a visible and metaphysical in order to say you can't know the visible, invisible and metaphysical. He basically believed that man could not know God, but he could have a basic knowledge of God. So he was not an atheist. He said, we can't know God, but there is a God. We must live like there is a God without any real good reason. Yet God made himself known, and we know that by that which is knowable, Jesus Christ. God became man to make himself knowable. Manuel Kant, David Hume, didn't believe that. Here's another good curse word for the third three-foot putt you miss on your next round of golf. George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. <laughs> Just say that instead of the, the regular words. He believed in evolving truth. Truth, which is strange. Truth doesn't evolve. Truth is truth. Uh, the truths of each generation, he says, are its thesis, and the opposition of the thesis is the antithesis, and the goal is come to come to a synthesis, which would become the next thesis. So, thesis, um, just make any statement you want of truth, and then take the opposite of it, the antithesis, put them together, and you've got a synthesis, and then use that synthesis for your next thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So it's evolving in Hegel's way of thinking. The process, he called, uh, was the spirit, or the geist. That's where we use the word gist, get the gist of it. Uh, this is the gist of history. History is evolving, as is truth, from thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Uh, the ideas that uh, Hegel introduced were embraced by Karl Marx. If Karl Marx liked what you said, you're in trouble. Theology, which is the study of God, turned into anthropology, which is the study of man. To know God in Hegel's way of thinking is to study history and its flow. Uh, so God is changing whatever God was in the past. God is not that way now. God will not be the way he is now in the future as history changes and unfolds. Charles Lyell comes around 1797 to 1875. He challenged the earth's age. No one had done that up to this point. No one of any profound influence. Charles Darwin followed him, challenged creation and the necessity of God's existence. In fact, Darwin believed in God, went to Sunday school before he began to question what he did. Atheism, as a result, became not only feasible, but wise and modern. Uh, I learned, learned that when uh, my kids were growing up. You know, they, you know, kids would come home and ask them about school or something. They're, they're out of school now, but uh, you know, I said, well, so-and-so's an atheist. They're an atheist. And I said, you know what? These kids don't know enough to know that there's no God. No one does. But it just became a fad. It's a fad today. I don't believe that stuff. Prove it. Show me. How, how can you say there is no God? In fact, to, to be an atheist is quite an arrogant stance. You know so much. You've been all over this universe to know for a fact there is no God. How can you know that? The only one with that kind of knowledge is God. Therefore, you're God. Oh, well, they quickly back off into agnosticism. Well, I don't know. Well, that's easy. Talk to you out of being an atheist in about 30 seconds into an agnostic. And so now you don't know. So are you one of those who say you absolutely never can know, no one can ever know, because it sounds like you know so much that you can't know, you've just contradicted yourself, or are you a regular agnostic, which would just say, I don't know, help me know. Don't meet many of them. Man was only an animal, and when man's an animal, morals are sociologically induced. In other words, you can do anything you want. If we're just animals, and we evolved, how can we say there's right and wrong? Right and wrong would just be a sociological or a social moray. 
we believe this society believes that it's wrong to, to hurt a child. Okay, but over in this society would say, no, it's perfectly fine to hurt a child. And that would be okay for that society because they have deduced that from their social experiments, and that's okay there. So what's okay there is not okay there. And it's not even up to us to say one's right or wrong because to do so would mean that we're something more than animals. Folks, there is such bankruptcy in this ridiculous way of thinking. Evolution. To think that we came from nothing, that's a great miracle. Yeah, Stephen? Um, yeah, it's really modernism. Um, we talk a lot about postmodernism, but uh, postmodernism, you can't even talk. You can't make any sense of anything, but it's modernism. Uh, don't, we, we can't, no one can, it's called postmodernism today, but it's just modernism. Modernism is to question everything just like we're doing here, but postmodernism is to go out, in other words, I've heard it illustrated like a, like a baseball game. Uh, and before modernism, a strike was a strike. The ball's got to hit some area of the plate between the knees and the shoulders. That's a strike. In modernism, eh, we're not sure there's a plate there at all. In postmodernism, what's baseball? Um, and so you can't, you can't communicate in postmodernism because there, no, there is no logic flow to even language. So it's, more, it's modernism more than anything. Charles Darwin said, I did not then in the least doubt the strict and the literal truth of every word in the Bible. It never struck me how illogical it was to say that I believed in what I could not understand and what is in fact unintelligible. From September 1884 onwards, I devoted all my time to arranging my huge piles of notes, to observing and experimenting in relation to the transmutation of the species. It was evident that such facts as these could be explained on the supposition that the species became gradually modified. You know, he's in the Galapagos Islands, and he's watching, he's looking at beaks on birds. They change, which is adaptation, as you know, adapting to one's environment. He's, it becomes, in the modern world, that this is evolution. It evolves, comes out of nothing. Evolution's got to start somewhere, but, you know, you get, uh, if you've ever watched a good, a good sarcastic apologist, you know, that the... They'll ask, okay, well, well tell me, where, where the, is, it, is it still a bird? The beak is different, but it's still a bird, right? Well, yeah, it's still a bird. Okay, well, what was it before that? It was a bird. But evolution says it evolved from something other than a bird. Well, tell me, what, what's bacteria? Well, bacteria is mutating and changing, but what is it? It's bacteria. It remains bacteria. It's always been bacteria. It always will be bacteria. It doesn't go from, from something to anything else. It's just bacteria mutating. Uh, but he's using it uh, in this way. His thesis, his experiment, his theory. Biological laws govern the whole of organic nature, including humans, Darwin said. That organisms struggle for existence. Hence the, the uh, what is it I'm trying to say? Survival. Survival of the fittest. Physical and mental traits that confer an advantage can be inherited. The greater will inherit that, the lesser will not, and they will die off. Cumulative effect of selection accounts for the emergence of new species. So those that are, that are evolving and evolving with the, their predecessors' greater genes are evolving into greater, stronger, and the lesser are dying out. Things we observe now have always functioned in the same way as we observe them functioning today. Completely unprovable, but that's... What evolution teaches. He espoused it. Got the ball rolling on it. People believe it today. Theological response of higher criticism. Here's another good name. Friedrich Schleiermacher. It's a great name. Not such a great guy. But the premises of Christianity seemingly destroyed in many people. Some sought to preserve it. Schleiermacher said that true religion is a feeling of total dependence upon God. Remember, religion back there 
is a word used that we use today as faith, uh, the Christian faith. So when he speaks of religion, that's what he is. True religion or true Christianity is a feeling of total dependence upon God. The Bible chronicles man's dependence, but it is not a body of inerrant truth. So now, and he was pretty heavy hitter in his day, bringing this kind of, these kind of ideas to the church, into the church, into the pastorates. Bruno Bauer, 1809-1882, student of Hegel, applied Hegel to the New Testament. Here's what he came up with, just laughable. Peter, Simon Peter, was the thesis. He was Jewish Christianity. Paul was the antithesis, or Gentile Christianity, because Peter went to the Jews, Paul went to the Gentiles. They both went to the other groups too. John and Luke, which is God's love for all, was the synthesis. Bruno Bauer. Don't buy his stuff. David Strauss, 1808-1874, sought to demythologize the historical Jesus. Today, his movement has evolved, I should say devolved, in what's today known as the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar. Sounds like a Christian group, doesn't it? Uh, No, we're going to demythologize. We're going to go through the Bible and demythologize. Take all the miracles out because those are myths. Let's get rid of them all. And what do we have left? Not much. Albrecht Ritschel sought to find the quote, unquote, grain amid the chaff of the Bible. Uh, who gives him the ability to do that? I mean, what, what is his standard of, of finding what's not a grain? And people do that today. You know, you say, people will say today, I don't believe in this. Typically, it's I don't believe in an election. I don't believe that, that women should be kept from preaching. Okay, well, uh, where do you get that? Because those things are in the Bible. Well, I, I think those are cultural. You think they were, or do you know they were? Was it also cultural when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life? No man comes to the Father but by me? Was that just a cultural saying at the time? What else are we dependent upon your study of the Bible that we have to believe or not believe? So let's get rid of this stuff out of the Bible that we don't like. Julius Wellhausen, 1844 to 1910, he questioned Mosaic authorship and created a four-author hypothesis for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the JEDP hypothesis. There was a J writer, or Yahweh, Jehovah writer, an Elohim writer, a priestly writer, and a Deuteronomical writer, none of which were Moses. But here's the good thing. These people questioning this put Bible scholars in motion, and they set out to prove everything that was taken for granted up to this point. So as bad as they were, It produced, God used it for good in the church. So the results of such men, biblical quote-unquote Christianity was preserved, but only as a hollow shell of its former self, full of liberal ideas. Jesus was nothing but a man. He's not God. Sin was simply being selfish. Salvation was societal improvement and mere ethics. That's the social gospel we have today. With liberalism, evangelicalism faced its greatest Goliath both then and now. Because if you don't know how to refute these things, someone stands up in front of you with a robe and a, and a hefty set of alphabet soup behind their name and tells you something, you're going to feel inferior to that. Um, but if you know the truth, battling liberalism is really not that hard of a thing. When you know the truth, not such a Goliath. And of course, we know Goliath fell with one little stone, scholars and pastors began to interpret the Bible in light of all the supposed scientific evidence. Well, we know just from basic COVID science uh, how scientific science has actually become. 
and the church's response, the response of the church to higher criticism, which is the social gospel, was the compromise of the church to prevailing secular ideas. I was reading, uh, I've read many actually, a uh, handful to say many, of uh, liberal theologians who will say, you Christians who would actually take Genesis 1 and compromise it with evolution don't believe anything about the Bible. This is an atheist saying this. He said, if you're going to take our ideas that are meant to refute the Bible and try to adapt them into what the Bible says, you've missed the point. Christians have to stand on what the God's Word says. You either stand on it or you don't. There is no middle ground. The middle ground makes God want to puke. Isn't that what he says? You're neither hot nor cold. They just want to spew you out of my mouth. But this is how it launched as American pastors and scholars continue to study abroad and all those liberal places in Germany. This theological liberalism found its way into the seminaries, the pulpits, and ultimately to the people in the pews, as it always does. Because people respect their pastors. Pastors must know something that we don't. He or she has this degree, and and they must know. And so what they say, we believe. Ah, Be careful. Be careful of that. Henry Ward Beecher, 1872. He had a famous daughter. Anyone know her name? Yeah, Harry Beecher Stowe. He said that the, he was a preacher, became liberal, said that the old, old story of the Bible just won't do. What would you do if I said that? Isn't that what Andy Stanley is saying today? It won't do. He says, if ministers do not make their theological systems conform to the facts as they are, the time will not be far distant when the pulpit will be like the voice crying in the wilderness. Well, unfortunately, he, he phrases it wrong. He would be right if they were facts. If what the Bible said was actually refuted by facts, yeah, the Bible would be in question. But there are no scientific facts that that in any way refute the Bible. There just isn't. There are different ideas. There's evolution and there's creation. Neither of these can be proven, folks. Make sure you know that. Neither of these can be proven. No one was there in the beginning. It's a matter of what you believe. There are PhDs and extremely... Intelligent people on this side, extremely intelligent people on this side. It's not about being intelligent. It's about a worldview and what you believe can be. Now, the creationists will show you it doesn't have to be that the earth is millions and billions of years old. And they've, they've done that. We'll look at a little bit of that tonight. So there are three ways that we can resolve the apparent contradiction. Truth number one, science says that humans have evolved over millions of years. And truth number two, Suppose the truth. The Bible reveals that humans were created about 6,000 years ago. You can't have both. Either one's wrong and the other's wrong, or they're both wrong. Response one. Remember we studied Thomas Aquinas a while back? And we've been through this slide. He says, either we're not interpreting... This is one of the options, I should say. He said, we're not interpreting the Bible correctly. We must modify our understanding of the Bible. Now, he'll give another option. but So he doesn't necessarily believe that, but he's saying if there's contradiction, then... We are not interpreting the Bible correctly. We must modify our understanding of the Bible. There must be something like a gap theory or a day-age theory to explain why the Bible doesn't mean what it appears to be saying. Now, the gap theory would say that God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1, and then there's a a gap of millions, even billions of years before verse 2 happens. uh, Or verse 3. That's the gap theory. That was promoted for years. Uh, And then the day-age theory is a day is not 24 hours, it's an entire age. could be a thousand years. Uh, And so that's what he's proposing. It could be this is the option. 
These theories came about in the early 1800s as Christians sought to make the Bible fit the speculations of evolution. Now, Aquinas lived back in, in uh, far longer than this, back in what, 11, 10, 1100. And uh, so this is just the options that he was giving, not for evolution, but in his day, if there's something that we see in science, something in the Bible, we must be not interpreting the Bible pro properly. Option number two by Aquinas is that we're not doing science properly. If we understood the scientific data, we'd understand that the world is not billions of years old, but thousands. He's not saying that. I'm putting that in there. <clears throat> this is the contention of creation scientists today who hope to show that the scientific interpretation of evolutionists is wrong and that the data interpreted correctly argue for a young earth. Our creation scientists today, I think the, the foundational gentleman was Henry Morris, John Whitcomb, and their foundational book, 1960, called The Genesis Flood showing how the, the worldwide flood produced all the fossils that we have, everything that we have in geology. Um, today, our more modern experts uh, work for Answers in Genesis under Ken Ham uh, and the, uh, his group up there in Kentucky. Uh, and so creation scientists are, are looking to, to show that, that the Bible can be true. Uh, response three, remember <clears throat> William of Ockham? It is not surprising that science's deduction contradicts with God's revelation. For science can never prove truths about God or ontology, which is, ontology is existence. Science cannot prove the study of existence. You can't scientifically, excuse me, I've got to clear my throat. Science cannot go back and study and see how everything came to be. You know, we can take everything we have today, if everything's expanding the way it is, and the earth and the universe as it is, and you brought it all back to one single point called a singularity, uh, what's the singularity? Uh, how did it explode into everything? Uh, what made it, who or what lit the fuse, as it were. It, science can't do that. There is no way to prove that, to show that. It's a worldview. It's an idea. You either believe that God created it all, or it all came from a singularity in time, in time and space, because that, that little singularity, small as it was, they think, uh, everything in the universe all down to one single little BB, how did that get there? How did it go out into space that doesn't exist? Space is something. It's got to be creating space as it goes and as it expands. How? That's a great miracle. I mean, they say they don't believe in miracles. That's the greatest miracle one can conceive. So Occam is saying it can't be proven. God has revealed that creation began 6,000 years ago, yet we can't prove that. To explain how it could be that the earth is only 6,000 or so years old, but appears to be older than that in the fossil evidence, let's think about creation. Shall we? Sound like Mr. Rogers. Let's think about that. <clears throat> If you were standing in the Garden of Eden on the eighth day, God's created in six days, he rested in the seventh, on the eighth day, you're standing there. Would there have been water flowing in the Tigris River? Why? Has it begun to flow? Would there have been stars in the sky for us to see their light? I mean, they're, they're billions of light years away. Wouldn't it take billions of years before us to see the first light? <laughs> Y'all are too easy. Would Eve have had hair on her head? Or would Adam have had a navel? Or, or, it, or how old was she and he when, when God made them? Were they babies? Was it a chicken or an egg first? Quite certain it was the chicken. Would the soil have had nutrients in it? The soil has to, over time, has to um, gain nutrients. Would the earth below Eden have had layers? Would the trees have had circles in them? Would there be fossils in the layers? You ever hear of creation in medius res? That, that little Latin statement means in the midst. 
The story that starts in the middle of the plot. That's what Medius Res is. The only sensible way to create an evolving entity of all of a sudden is to create it with the appearance that it has a history. Would it have had been more appropriate for Eve to have a bald head, wait for her hair to grow? I just chose Eve because I could have chosen Adam. Would it have been more appropriate to create the Tigris as an empty riverbed until rains occurred in Turkey and flowed to Eden? No. It was all there with age. It was the appearance of age. God made it. It was there. You either believe that or you don't. So when something is created in medius res, it has the appearance of age. The most common argument against creation in medius res is to say that it would have been deceitful for God to create an earth with the appearance of age. For that would lead people to conclude that the earth is older than it is. I had a guy who used to come here. He always wanted to argue with me about it. He said, God would just be deceiving us if the light from those stars uh, somehow didn't take billions of years to get here. That would be God deceiving us. But is it deception when he told us that he created it in six days? I mean, if he said he did it, I don't really see that as a deception. I've already gotten ahead of myself. It might seem deceitful, but if God revealed to us he created 6,000 years ago, and by the way, 6,000 isn't in the Bible. I'll show you where we get it. How can that be deceitful? It is only because modern naturalists reject the revelation of God, which tells us that, tells this that they believe. I should have done that right better. Which tells this is, I don't even know what I meant. Sometimes I go back and I, and I edit and I just made it worse. It tells us this. I needed a comma, didn't I? Or, or even a colon. Thank you, Sharon. It tells us this, colon, that they believe it is deceitful for God to create an earth with apparent age. Um, modern naturalists, I mean, we don't believe in a God that would deceive. And God is saying, look, guys, I created it all there. I mean, when I said Adam and Eve, I assume that you would use the common sense I gave you and know that I created two people. And yes, Adam would have had a navel and Eve would have had long, beautiful, flowing hair. And the animals there were already in existence. Yes, the, the, it was the chicken before the egg. I mean, I think God is a big... Really? <laughs> yeah, Marty. So does the deceit idea, does that trump God's necessity If he did it that way, then that's the way it had to be done. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's not the seat, it's to his glory. He had to There you go. Yeah. He did, he had to. It was to his glory. If he would have done it another way, that would have been to his glory. But, but he doesn't say, I made two babies. One way or the other, you, you've got, it becomes absurdity. There's no woman to birth Adam or to feed the baby. Yeah. He had to know something. God had to put a little chip in this, his little head to, to give him what knowledge he needed. He, he was a thinking human being. Uh, so, and that was his glory. Thank you, Marty. So when we look at Christian truth versus man's truth, let's take a look at where we get 6,000 years from the Bible. Philosophy says that matter is evil. Materialism. Matter is evil. We've seen this. Gnosticism. Um, yet the Bible says that Jesus was sinless and he had a body. So if all matter is evil, then Jesus would be evil. But if he had a body, then he would have been evil. This is a contradiction. You can't have both. So Jesus couldn't have had a body. He only appeared to have one, and we looked at that in the past, a long time ago, called docetism. Docetism is a Greek word from dokeo. It means to think, to seem. 
It seemed like he had a body, but he didn't. Because if he'd had a body, he'd have been evil. And we know Jesus wasn't evil. Docetism. We know that all men deserve to have liberty and pursue happiness. At least we, we theorize that. All men deserve to have liberty. We believe that that's true. We know the Bible does not tell slave owners to give their slaves liberty. Never says that. This is a contradiction. So we must misunderstand Scripture. The reason Paul didn't speak against slavery is because first century Roman slavery was not cruel. It wasn't racist like the slavery we know from our country was. We know that the earth has evolved over billions of years, at least in one way of thinking. We know that the Bible says the earth was created about 6,000 years ago. This is a contradiction. So we must be misunderstanding Scripture. So we've got to somehow introduce a gap theory, a day-age theory, just an all-out myth theory. Can't believe any of this stuff. Do we really know this, that the earth was actually created 6,000 years ago? Well, let's take a look. Tonight, you're going to learn, if you don't already. Does the Bible say that? You got my timeline? Can you see that? What's that? Can you see it? All right. Not yet. We're getting there. You didn't think I was going to do it on one slide, did you? We can establish from various sources, both secular and Jewish, that Solomon began his reign in 970 B.C. You remember King Saul began to reign? He reigned for 40 years, 1050 to 1010. King David began to reign 1010. He reigned 40 years, down to 970. And his son Solomon reigned 970 to 930. And, and this is established from, from secular sources even, and, and Jewish sources. So put 970 in there. It's really, and I've rounded it off. It's really 966, but I don't want to give you a bunch of uh, strange numbers. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 says that in the fourth year of his reign, King Solomon began building the temple. This occurred, it says there, in the 480th year after the sons of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. So you're going to have to crunch some numbers. You grammarians are going to be lost immediately. They don't like numbers. So 1 Kings 1 says the fourth year of his reign, Solomon began building the temple. And this occurred 480 years after the Exodus. So the Exodus, we're just going to add those numbers. 970, he began to build in 970. And having come out of the Exodus, Egypt, I say, 480 years prior. That's just addition. So you add those together, 1450 B.C. So we believe that the exodus from Egypt occurred in 1450 B.C. We're just crunching the numbers that the Bible's giving us. God's inerrant word. Exodus 1241 says the exodus occurred 430 years to the day, quote unquote, from the time the family of Jacob went to Egypt to see Joseph because they had learned he was alive. Okay, so we're going to go backwards a little bit more. That means Jacob went into Egypt sometime around 1880 B.C. Again, just crunching the numbers the Bible gives us. Genesis 47, 9 says that Jacob was 130 years old when he went to Egypt. Genesis 25, 26 says that Isaac, his son, or his dad, I should say, was 60 years old when Jacob was born. And Genesis 21, 5 says Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. More numbers we've been given. That means Abraham was born around 2170 B.C. We're just adding those numbers and going backwards because we're B.C. So Abraham, when you're reading in your Bible, and you come to Genesis 12, and you come across Abram, not quite Abraham yet, you're about 2100 B.C. The genealogy from Genesis 11 adds up to 290 years between the birth of Abraham and the birth of Shem, who preceded him. That means Shem was born around 2460 B.C. Remember Shem, one of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth? The genealogy of Genesis 5 adds up to 651 years, or 1,651 years, between the birth of Shem and the creation of Adam. 
That means Adam was created around the year 4015 BC. Just using the numbers God has given us. So if 4015 BC and we're 2023 AD, there you go. Good class. We know that the earth has evolved over billions of years. We don't know that. We know that the earth was created 6,000 years ago, according to the Bible. Contradiction. You've got these day-age theories, the way that we're going to, let's go away from the Bible because the Bible's just man's idea. Let's invent a theory. You ever hear of Abraham Kuyper, anyone? Kuyper kind of presented a sane perspective. He was a Calvinist theologian. We love those. He said that all knowledge is based on the assumptions we make. We assume there's a God. Therefore, we assume the Bible he wrote is inerrant. We assume there is no God. Then that means we believe that the earth was created on its own from some outside source. We know nothing about. Maybe aliens, maybe crystals, maybe whatever. We don't know. It's a matter of your worldview. And that's what Kuiper is saying. Assumptions equals presuppositions equals presuppositional apologetics. Now, that's what I am. I'm a presuppositional apologetics apologist, I should say. And that is one who, when we come into an argument, uh, we come in presupposing certain things. I presuppose God to make my argument for God. Others presuppose there is no God. Which one do we start with? Well, without knowing it, the atheist starts the argument with God. Not only do they deep down know there's a God, if they're going to start their arguments with logic, the answer is why? Why do you get to start with logic. Where does that come from? Well, I don't know. How does a, a, a civilization, how does a, a universe that has exploded chaotically, out of nothing from nothing, which makes no scientific sense, how does that all settle together and have laws? Laws of logic that cannot be broken. How? How can that be? It can't be. It's not scientific. Explosions create chaos. They don't create order. All of them. Try it. I dare you. Try exploding anything and see if it creates something wonderful that you can keep. Wow, look at that. That doesn't happen. That's science. So when the atheist begins, okay, I'm going to give you a logical perspective as to why there's no God. Why do you get to use logic? In the beginning was the word, was the logos. In the beginning was logic. Logic exists because God exists. You can't have logic without a God. The presupposition that they're taking, they should start with logic, but they don't know how or why they get to start with logic. On the other side of theism, we know why, because God created it. Actually, God didn't create logic. Logic exists because God exists. We start, they're stealing from us. You ever hear that? The atheists are stealing from the Christians. We want your logic so we can stand on the foundation of logic and you have no reason for logic. So we're presuppositional apologists. Are you with me? I'm disappointed. Disappointing class. I know you are, Grant. This is all good stuff to you. That's why I love you. We have no common ground to argue with an atheist because we share totally different presuppositional foundations as in the example of the Scopes Monkey Trial. How many of you know what the Scopes Monkey Trial were? Any of you alive in those days? Okay. You'd have to be over 100 years old. Almost 100 years old. The demise of fundamentalism. 
Fundamentalism meaning the fundamentals of the faith. We believe the Bible. We believe there's a God. We believe Jesus Christ is his son, God in the flesh. We believe there's our salvation only in Christ. We believe that we're sinful and we need salvation to believe in Christ. That's fundamentalism. We also call it evangelicalism today. The mainstream America had, or had came to despise fundamentalists as ignorant and closed-minded based upon the theories of evolution and how they were permeating through the church and academia. Um, the name fundamentalist, which is a perfectly good name, came to be used to describe an ignorant, bigoted person. And this came about because of many factors, the most famous of which was the Scopes Monkey Trial. You ever hear of the Butler Act? State of Tennessee passed the Butler Act forbidding the teaching of evolution in public schools. Forbidding the teaching of evolution in public schools. Well, in 1925, that's when evolution is taking hold. We want to teach evolution. And the Butler Act says you can't teach evolution. So what's the best way to go up against this law and say we're going to teach evolution? Drum up a good lawsuit. Make it a Supreme Court case. Supporters of evolution decided to challenge the law in court. Oh, this thing is delaying. But they needed someone to break the law so it could be brought to court. Enter a man named John Scopes. Uh, Evolution supporters got John Scopes, a P.E. and science teacher, to agree to teach evolution in his class in order to cause a trial. It's called this drugstore reenactment. Here's a picture of those who were putting it together. They made the agreement with Scopes in this particular drugstore, made, made a photo op out of it uh, in order to, to make it happen. Scopes supporters agreed to pay his legal fees. You just go teach evolution, we'll pay your legal fees, and we're going to get something started. Uh, here's the opening evolution trial. Brings talent and world notice to Dayton, Tennessee. And we're going to debate this issue. Scopes was charged, a trial set, though it was never about Scopes himself. Uh, the evolution supporters wanted a case that would go to the Supreme Court. This they would get. All recognize what the trial truly was about, truly was about. Yeah. yeah. You know, I send this to Giuseppe so he can translate it in, into uh, Spanish. And he usually picks these things up, so... Uh, Gabby, tell him he, he's falling down on the job. <laughs> Evolution supporters hired the best lawyers in the nation for their case. And the anti-evolution forces did the same. So here they are. Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan. They're going to try this case. Darrow said, you claim everything in the Bible should literally be interpreted. When you read that the whale swallowed Jonah, how do you literally interpret that? Brian said, I believe in a God who can make a whale and can make a man and can make both of them do what he pleases. Darrow said, why do you believe he made them? But do you believe he made them? That he made such a fish and that it was big enough to swallow Jonah. Brian, yes, sir. Let me add, one miracle is just as easy to believe as another. A miracle is a thing performed beyond what man can perform. When you get within the realm of miracles, it is just as easy to believe the miracle of Jonah as any other miracle in the Bible. Way to go. I'd say the same thing. Brian said, I would not attempt to fix the date when he was asked about the date. Darrow, but what do you think the Bible itself says? Don't you know how it was arrived at? Date of the earth. I never made the calculation, Brian says. By the way, Darrow is just weaving him to his web. It looks like Brian's doing real well, but uh, Darrow's quite squirrely. Darrow says, calculation from what? From the generations of man? 
that the Bible gives? He said, I would not want to say that, Brian said. Daryl counters, what do you think? All this is all, these are all quotes. Brian, I do not think about things I don't think about. <laughs> yeah. Do you think about things do you do think about? <laughs> Daryl was not going to be up, um, upended on this. Have you any idea of the length of these periods of time? Daryl asks. Brian says, no, I don't. Daryl, do you think the sun was made on the fourth day? Yes. My computer's lagging. There's something in the system tonight. They had evening and morning without the sun? If it was created on the fourth day? Brian, I'm simply saying it was a period. They had evening and morning for four periods without the sun? Daryl sarcastically asked. Brian, I believe in creation as we are told. And if I am not able to explain it, I will accept it. Daryl, good picture of Daryl, isn't it? Darrow, after the trial, he says, I made up my mind to show the country what an ignoramus he was, and I succeeded. Do you believe? Again, I messed up there. I'm really pretty good at this, Jonathan. I'm normally a little more clean on this. Do you believe there's any way a guy like Brian could hope to convince a guy like Darrow the truth using logic alone? Do you think that? If you do, if you think that, it's naive. Uh, People with sarcastic questions like Darrell was asking are not open to the truth. Someone may come up and genuinely say, I don't know. I'm an agnostic. I don't know. Can you tell me? That's that's a good opportunity. But the sarcastic ones, don't engage. Don't engage. This guy set him up to do what he did and made Christianity look foolish for the time. William of Ockham says we can know some aspects of a philosophical I hyphenated that because originally I was trying to get it off the first line. Um, Systems are false by revelation. We can know some aspects of a philosophical system are false by revelation. Example, one assumption on which evolution is based is that the physical and biological phenomena observed today have always acted in this manner. This is reasonable with no revelation from God. We just don't know that everything acts today as it always did. But God has revealed there was a time when he created all things. The natural laws we observe today do not extend beyond the creation date. The revelation tells us something that we cannot learn by reason alone. Occam is saying that without revelation, reason may lead us to an erroneous conclusion. By like William of Occam. His view of reality, as we saw before, is that God is outside of all things. All reality up here. The physical universe within this circle and within the physical universe is logic and natural laws. They govern all of reality. Um, Man is inside that physical universe. To get to God, man cannot reason his way to God, who is outside of that system. God must reveal himself to man. That's Occam. And he did. God has revealed himself to man in the creation itself. Natural revelation and, more specifically, through his son Jesus Christ and the word he left with us. Modernism says, if you will, postmodernism. Modernism says here's all reality within this circle. Logic and natural laws govern all of reality. Uh, that man is within that reality or that, that realm. Man can reason his way to all truth, uh, even to God if there is a God. But he has to reason his way there. It's the only way he can get it. Modernism. Also, if the Bible says something and if it is true, then we must be able to harmonize that with what we know from science because all truth is one, and we do. I mean, there is no God's truth and scientific truth. Truth is truth. Uh, 
the Bible does not contain every bit of truth in the world. There's truth outside of the Bible. That's not me saying you need to go read other sources, but truth is found in, in uh, uh, medical journals. Truth is found in comic strips. I mean, truth is truth. In God's revelation, God must reveal himself to man in contrast to modernism. And finally, the bottom line of simple application is this, and that is that don't be threatened when scientists say they've proven things that contradict the Bible. Uh, always come along and find a different one that says, no, you ever see on the news, scientists found this fossil and it questions everything they believe. Apparently the, the moon, this is amazing, we just learned the other day, the moon is, do you know the moon is 40 million years older than we thought? Or was it 40 billion? 40 million years old, wow, that changes everything in my life. And how do they know that? How do they know that? Interesting thing is the sun, if the sun is this big, you know the sun loses a certain amount of mass every moment. That means if you go back billions of years, how big was the sun? If it's losing a steady mass at the same rate today as always, and we don't know that. So if it gets this big, let's say, okay, here's the earth. Here's the sun and here's the earth. What happens when that sun was that big? The moon's the same way. If the, you know the moon is moving away from the earth a certain amount of distance, a very small distance every 40 million years later? That means the earth at one time had the, had the moon sitting on top of it. If you take their rates, if you take the silliness of it. I mean, it's just, I think you see the point. Their science contradicts itself every year. Um, if you're into to fitness, I mean, you read a fitness article today, don't read it. Because it'll be contradicted next week. Don't eat carbs. Eat carbs. White rice. Terrible for you. Eat brown rice. No, brown rice is terrible for you. Eat white rice. That's what I heard the other day. White rice. There's a reason why, why Asians take that brown shell off. There ain't nobody. I don't know which one to eat. Ah. I order brown rice because I think it's better. It's just. Yeah, potatoes. My wife won't let me eat potatoes. She says they're bad for you. She, no, nah, she doesn't. She just makes fun of me. She doesn't keep me from doing it. And never seek to conform your understanding of the Bible to modern science. Read science. Be a scientist. But don't let it dictate what you believe. Now, next week, we'll look at part two of this. Fundamentalism, evangelicalism. I'm really going to make you upset with, uh, and show you where the church is today based on what certain theologians have said and how so many have followed him. And I'm going to show you a couple of heroes. Uh, if you've never been introduced to J. Grisham Machen, uh, Machen uh, one of the great heroes of the faith, and most people have never heard of him. And uh, you know, early 20th century guy, um, one of the great heroes of conservative theology. Close us in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you again for our time. Thank you for your word. I pray you would keep us faithful. Make us faithful and keep us faithful to your word. May it be our joy to serve you. Uh, may we have an answer for all who ask us about the hope that resides within us uh, in Jesus Christ. May we give the truth and, and explain it in love or not at all. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 